Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful for the blessings of this day and of life itself and of life everlasting in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Spirit sent from heaven, bringing nations to faith and obedience to your Son, bringing us who are here to new life in Christ and bringing and applying to our souls the benefits of your Son's atoning work on our behalf. We're thankful, O Lord, for your church that is built upon a precious foundation and that will withstand all assaults against her and will indeed not only endure those assaults, but will bring her own attacks to the kingdom of darkness and prevail in the end. We're thankful, O God, for the fellowship that we enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ, and not only in this local congregation, but in all faithful churches not only throughout this world, O Lord, but saints who have gone into the presence of our risen Savior even now. We are thankful, O God, that you have blessed us in the first half of this week, that you have cared for us and preserved our lives and given us a sufficient measure of health that we might meet together. We pray that you would be with our brothers and sisters who are ill, those who are traveling, those who are tested and tried in various ways, that you would be with them and bring to them the blessings that they stand in need of, that you would grant healing to those who are sick, comfort to those who mourn, encouragement to those who are discouraged, and safety to those who travel and labor away from us. We ask your blessing upon our nation, O God, that you would give us wise and God-fearing men to rule at the federal, state, and local levels, and that you would guide the affairs of this land, that it might be uh, obedient to you and reflect the standards of justice and righteousness that you have revealed in creation and in your covenantal word. We pray, O God, for your blessing upon the continued ministry of this church, that you would make us to be salt and light, uh, to be like leaven in this community, bringing uh, the uh, saving aroma of the gospel to our neighbors and friends, and that through the ministry of this church, many would come to know Christ as Savior. We ask your blessing upon our study this evening, God, that you would guide our hearts and minds, that you would open the scriptures to be understood by us and help us, O oh Lord, that our hearts might be further enlightened. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm not Dane. We're two weeks into uh, a, a new study of Ephesians, but Dane had some travel uh, commitments tonight, and so I'm going to be uh, just doing kind of a one-off study with you that I actually referred to uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, maybe on Reformation Sunday, I mentioned stay tuned. We were going to think a little bit about uh, what kind of a church we are. I don't remember exactly how I said it, but this was the lesson that I had in mind when I said it. So if you remember me saying it, all well and good. If you don't remember me saying it, it doesn't really matter. So there's no point in talking about it. We're going to do an ecclesiastical taxonomy tonight. Taxonomy is when you categorize something. You organize it according to its kind, according to its characteristic features. And we're really asking the question, what kind of a church is Reformation OPC? Now, there are different ways that we can answer that question, and, um, and, and I'm going to talk about the reasons that I am wanting to answer it in this way tonight. You do have a handout. There's a more complete handout uh, in the online resource folder, but first, let's go to God's Word. I want to take you to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, to Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a text you know well. I want to read with you verses 20 uh, to 26 
at the end of the chapter. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal. He has concluded the Last Supper, the institution of the Eucharist. He has uh, made his way or is making his way uh, during these events toward the garden where we will have the Gethsemane prayer uh, later that evening. But here is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in verse 20, he says this to his father. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thus far, God's word. Now, we've talked about this passage before, even uh, recently making mention of it in the Reformation uh, Day sermon uh, that I delivered where we talked uh, about the need for ongoing biblical reformation in the church. We talked about the nature of the unity that Christ is praying for here. It is not merely institutional, but neither is it merely some kind of ill-defined, ethereal, spiritual unity. It's union in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also unity as a body of believers, unity as the people of God. And we said that while we don't want to reduce that to institutional unity in the way that, for instance, the Roman church might, neither do we want to disembody that in the way that a lot of evangelicals and maybe independent evangelicals would, where it's almost as if every individual believer has their personal relationship with Christ, but none of us really have any meaningful material relationship with one another. If the church is one in Jesus, and it is, that unity should be reflected in her life, in her worship, in her doctrine, and if it is reflected in those ways, it is inevitable that there will be some type of institutional unity that we see. That does not necessarily mean the cessation of all denominations. That doesn't necessarily mean that every congregation in every place is going to worship in exactly the same form or fashion. But it does mean the end of the kinds of divisions that we see in the church today. In many ways, I think we should lament that there are kinds of churches at all. Now, if we meant that in the way that we might have meant it in the first century, I actually think that would be okay. This is a point that I'm going to mention, but I'm not going to elaborate, so if you want to ask me about it afterward, that's fine. Uh, Unity in Christ does not mean the end of earthly and temporal distinctives. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, slave nor free, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. And the men are still men, and the women are still women, and the Jews are still Jews, and the Greeks are still Greeks, and the slaves are still slaves, and the masters are still masters. What he's not talking about is the flattening out of all earthly and temporal categories. He's talking about the transcendence of those categories. 
So that now in Christ, the man is not ahead of the woman, the Jew is not ahead of the Greek, the master is not ahead of the slave, but rather we are all one in Jesus. We are uh, together equally accepted by the Father and viewed righteous in the Son. And yet there are still ethnic distinctions that we can see, national distinctions, cultural distinctions, linguistic distinctions of various kinds. And not all of these distinctions are bad. That doesn't mean that every kind of cultural distinction is good. There are some cultures that are better than other cultures. If the culture of your people is historically to eat other tribes of people, that's a problem. That's the culture of some tribes. If your cultural distinctives or your ethnic commitments revolve around the extermination of another ethnic group, that's a problem. We're not saying that all of these differences are equal or equally acceptable. Obviously, the gospel is going to transform even those personal, earthly, temporal, ethnic distinctions that we have in the world today. I bring that up to say that in the first century church, you had some churches that were primarily Hebrews. They were primarily Jewish people for whom Hebrew and Aramaic were their primary language who had maintained dominantly a Hebraic culture, and they were distinct from the Jews of the dispersion. The Jews that were scattered throughout the Greco-Roman Empire, who had adopted the Greek language, Greek literature, Greek culture, they were still Jews, but they were Hellenists. They were Hellenistic Jews. Well, you had some churches, like the church in Jerusalem, that was dominated by Hebraic Jewish Christians. You had other churches for example, the church in Antioch, that was predominantly Hellenistic Jewish Christians. And then you get to places like Corinth. You get to places like Ephesus. You get to the churches in Rome. And those congregations are predominantly Gentile churches. Now, there is no place for any kind of ethnic vainglory or ethnic bigotry or malice or hatred between those various groups. But if you are one of the minorities in that congregation, it's going to be kind of obvious that, well, you know, most of the people here, they have another primary language. Most of the people here, they have other kinds of foods that they enjoy. Most of the people here, they might dress a little bit differently than I do or think about certain things a little differently than I do. And yet we are all one in Jesus Christ. If the differences and divisions that we saw in the church were those kinds of things, that would just be the multifaceted glory of God's grace in saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. But that's not what we see, is it? What we see instead is what we just sang about in the church's one foundation. We see the church, the body of Christ, by schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed. So while certain kinds of distinctives are providential and good, some people have red hair, some people have blonde hair, some people have brown hair. The diversity of colors is beautiful. Kimchi is awesome. Coffee's amazing. Four-part harmony is beautiful. And, and we can enjoy those kinds of distinctions that are not shared by all people groups. But when these distinctions are used to justify religious sectarianism and malice or ethnic vainglory, then it becomes sinful. Unfortunately, at this stage of human history, denominational divisions are inevitable, necessary, and useful. But they are also unfortunate. 
and we should hope and pray for the day when those kinds of divisions are no longer necessary or present at all. Think about the analogy of divorce. Is divorce a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it kind of depends on where you're at in terms of a difficult marriage, isn't it? Divorce itself, just as an institution, is, is kind of a bad thing. It's a necessary evil. But it is a necessary evil when there is irreparable covenant breaking. When a spouse is adulterous, when a spouse is abandoning their mate, well then divorce is the God-ordained means of bringing the curses of the covenant into that situation. To bring justice. In other words, that kind of divorce, even though lamentable in many ways, is doing something that we would say is fundamentally good. It's necessary. To separate in those kind of circumstances is a godly thing. And so too in the church today. How can a church that refuses to ordain women to religious office or refuses to sanctify same-sex marriages unite with churches that do those things? I remember uh, the examination of a young man years ago who was openly acknowledging that he wasn't sure that Presbyterianism was where he wanted to be. He might want to be Episcopal, and he might want to serve in an Episcopal communion that ordained women. Now, he said, now, I don't think that women should be ordained. But, but I'm willing to work alongside people who do. And, and the question that was, was asked was, what happens when your bishop is the woman that was ordained? You, you, have these, you have these personal convictions, but what happens when you now come under the authority of someone who stands in defiance of those convictions? There are too many denominations. There are too many right now. It is absurd how many different denominations we have. But at the same time, at this point in history, some of those divisions in the visible body of Christ are biblically mandated and necessary. Look, if you will, at Romans chapter 16 for just a minute. It's probably a little less familiar than Jesus' high priestly prayer. But it's just as important. We have a prayer for unity, and we have a call for biblical division. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Look for the people that are causing divisions, and divide yourself from them. (laughs) That's what he says. Or as Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, uh, warn a divisive person twice and then have nothing to do with him because he is self-condemned. And unfortunately, within the body of Christ, within the visible church, there are sometimes cancers. There are sometimes gangrenous appendages that for the sake of the body need to be cut off. Now I bring up all of that as context for our study this evening And in order to introduce that study, I want to introduce you to a Puritan that you may have heard of before, John Rabbi Duncan. He's frequently referred to as Rabbi Duncan by Puritan fans. He was a Reformed minister in the Free Church of Scotland. He was a missionary to the Jews in in Hungary, and he was a professor of Hebrew and Oriental languages at New College in Edinburgh. In fact, most of his ministry, most of his adult life and labors were in the context of theological education. And yet he did not write any books. He did not leave any written sermons or articles that would cause him to be remembered. He was primarily a professor, and from the accounts that we have of his life, he was arguably not extraordinarily successful At that, he might have been one of the drier professors that wouldn't necessarily have been your favorite teacher 
And yet he was remembered fondly by those who had come under his teaching and his wisdom. Uh, there are records of that, uh, biographies that have been written about him by students who would go on these long walks with him and would collect these wise sayings that Rabbi Duncan became famous for. Uh, in fact, someone else who you probably have heard of, Alfred Edersheim, was a Jew converted under Duncan's ministry who later wrote the kinds of books that some of you might have uh, in your own home about the New Testament and uh, Judaism and the temple and things of that sort. One of Rabbi Duncan's best-known aphorisms declared this. He said, quote, I am first a Christian, next a Catholic, then a Calvinist, fourth a Paedo-Baptist, and fifth a Presbyterian. I cannot reverse this order, end quote. I love that. I love that at a level I can't even adequately describe. And so I'm going to use Rabbi Duncan's taxonomy of his own religious identity as a way of kind of introducing a conversation about what kind of church ours is. And this, this lesson is really meant to be, again, one-off exercise in transparency and honesty. I think the way that many people would answer this kind of question is by telling you what denomination they're in. But if you've been here for like more than three weeks, you know that that's not going to really tell you much of anything. We are a member congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and thankful to God to be that, happy to be that. Thankful for that legacy, thankful for that history, thankful that the OPC is a denomination that preaches the gospel faithfully and courageously and well. But the reality is our denomination only tells part of the story. Most of our members were never members of a Reformed church before they came to this church. And even those of you who have been members of other Reformed churches, maybe even other members of OPC congregations, will tell you we're not typical. We're a little bit different in a number of ways. And so what I want to think about is something that is more fundamental than just denominational affiliation. What do you need to know and what do you know? What would you want to tell your friends and neighbors who visit this congregation? What is the theological DNA that we have that shapes us in more profound ways than affiliations ever could? It's kind of like uh, telling someone about your family... I might tell someone that, well, my family lives in Apache Junction, and we live in this neighborhood, and we live in a two-story house, but that doesn't really tell you about my family, does it? Because what defines my family transcends the particular geographic location of our abode. I mean, we've lived in different houses at different points in our life, and yet who we are has never changed. And God willing, these are the kinds of things that would never change. So first, we are a Christian church. A Christian church. The New Testament uses Christian three times to describe the followers of Jesus. Acts 11, Acts 26, and 1 Peter 4. And in all three of those places, the term appears to have come from the enemies and critics of Christianity. It appears that this name was first given by those who were opposed to the disciples of Jesus. In fact, far more common are terms like disciple, believer, saint, child of God, brother, or follower of the way. This was not a name that we gave to ourselves, but we claimed it because it rightly identifies us with Christ. We are Christians. 
We belong to Jesus. We follow Jesus. We are identified with him. And being a Christian identifies a person, or in this case a congregation, with specific religious commitments that are distinct from other religions. By saying we're Christian, we mean we're not Buddhist, we're not Hindu, we're not Muslim, we're not even Jews in that sense of practicing religious Judaism. Judaism has moved on since the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And Christianity, which I regard as fulfilled Judaism, has also moved on in the sense that we recognize the long-awaited Messiah has finally come. When we ask the question, what is a Christian church, I think you can look to instruments like the Apostles and Nicene Creeds for your answer. The Apostles and Nicene Creeds are not Scripture, but they summarize what all Orthodox Christians believe Scripture teaches. That's the proper function of a creed, is you say, I believe the Bible, great, what do you believe about it? What do you believe that it teaches? Everybody says that I believe the Bible. What do you actually believe the Bible teaches? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches that there's one God who sometimes manifests himself as a father, sometimes as a son, sometimes as a spirit, but you know, just puts on different hats and different masks and say, okay, well, then you're not a Christian, actually. You're a modalist. Right? This, is a, this is a heretical version of Christianity, but not, not a traditionally orthodox version. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, is confessed by all orthodox Christians, and many Christians that you would say maybe are not even real Christians. Like you go to a Roman Catholic Mass, you will hear the Creed. You go to the divine service in an Eastern Orthodox communion, you will hear the creed. You go to a Lutheran church, you will hear the creed. You go to a mainline church, a liberal church, you might even hear the creed, even if in many cases they would deny many parts of it. Even in lower churches, independent, non-denominational churches, where you might never hear a creed recited, you will nevertheless hear the theology of that creed affirmed. And so when you say, what is a Christian church? Because right now we have Mormon neighbors that will say, we're Christians too. We, we, I, I've had Mormons in my neighborhood that we, we get to talking and they say, oh, you know, we, we, we go to our church just down the road. It's the Church of the Latter-day Saints, right? And, well, okay, it's, it's not a Christian church actually. And we want to, to treat that respectfully and carefully but, but this is one of the fundamental differences, is that a Christian church is identified with traditional, historic, creedal Christian doctrines. We believe that Jesus is indeed the long-promised Christ, that he is the true king of Israel, that he fulfilled the law by faith, that he was crucified as our sacrifice, that he was resurrected the third day. We believe that he is both God and man, one person with two natures, incarnate forever, and that he ascended in glory and saves all who believe in him, regardless of where they're from, and that one day he will return as judge. And that's really what we're saying in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. Now, some traditions have emphasized the discontinuities between Old and New Testaments, and yet, by affirming the Apostles' Creed, we are affirming that the Bible is one book. And that is something that we would all affirm, all Orthodox Christians would affirm. Even those traditions that have created an exaggerated difference between the Old and the New Testaments, we would say, yes, but fundamentally, fundamentally, what God is doing in Christ in the New Testament is what He promised to do in the Old Testament. 
As Augustine said, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And so as a Christian church, we're affirming that unity, that there is a story, that there's a meta-narrative, and it's about redemption, and that is shared by all believers in Jesus. This is why you will find, especially as our civilization continues to circle the drain, you are going to find more and more and more commonality with your traditional Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, confessional Lutheran, uh, confessional Anglican friends, you will find more in common with them than you will perhaps some of the evangelical silliness that goes around us by the name of Christian but is increasingly devoid of any substance. Secondly, we're a Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal, and so many have suggested over the years, why don't you just simply use universal because Catholic is offensive, but uh, Catholic belongs to the Christian church, and we don't give up our terminology. It was used in the early church to describe Orthodox Christians. In fact, this is sometimes used, might say misused, by Roman Catholic apologists who will point to many instances of uh, reference to Catholic Christians, Catholic Christianity, but by that they just simply mean Orthodox Christians, traditional Christians, Christians that embrace and affirm those fundamental doctrines of the faith as opposed to the various schismatics and heretics that existed since the early centuries. We are not trying to start or belong to a new church. We are trying to be part of the one original body of Christ. Um, the, The churches that I grew up in had a tract years ago that said, neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jew. Neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jew. Now, in one sense, I want to affirm what they were trying to say. One of the slogans of the Restoration Movement churches is that we want to be only Christians, but not the only Christians. We want to be Christians only, but not the only Christians. In other words, we don't want to be any kind of flavor. We don't want to be any kind of brand. We don't want to be any particular sect. We want to just be followers of Jesus, yes and amen, and in doing so, they created a new sect. And what it ends up being is we are not the only Christians theoretically, but practically speaking, we might as well be. Because if you have any other kind of distinctive feature, that obviously means that you are not a Christian. Well, by saying that ROPC is a Catholic church, we are leaning the opposite direction hard. We're saying, no, no, no. We are part of the Catholic Church. No, we're not part of the Roman Catholic Communion. It's a small C Catholic, not a capital C Catholic. But we are nevertheless part of the Catholic Church. And we are not ashamed for anybody to know it. That we realize that our church has deep historical roots. That there was a tradition extending down from the first century. That the church did not have to be reinvented. It did not have to be recreated as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And we're not saying that differences among Christians don't matter. Of course they matter. But what we're saying is that there is a more fundamental unity that we share. Jesus built one church. He did not build 3,000. He did not build different kinds. He did not give us a Baskin-Robbins of ecclesiology, right? He gave us one church. One church. Now, we recognize that lampstands can be removed from that church. We recognize that branches can be broken off. We recognize that judgment can fall. We recognize that not every branch that is presently connected to the vine will eternally belong to the vine. And yet, there's still just one vine. There's still just one church. And you have to realize that whenever you see someone who believes in Jesus, 
and who has been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is a brother. Period, full stop. That's a brother. He may or may not be a faithful brother. Right? That, that's what we want to go to. Many times, even, even as Reformed Christians, we have imbibed a particular kind of low church revivalism where we are trying to deny the Christianity of people whose orthodoxy does not rise to the level that we think is required. But Christian is a covenantal category, and Catholic points to that. Catholic points to the universality, the unity of that church. It says, if, if, you're, if, if you say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified and resurrected, I'm putting my faith in him, and I've been baptized, he's a Christian. He's a Christian. He may be wrong about all kinds of things. He may be wrong. He may have some damnable errors in his theology. And yet he is covenantally Christian, and we are part of that Catholic church together. There is a fundamental unity. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, uh, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There's seven ones there, and I'm not suggesting that those seven points are the only points that are necessary to define a church. But I will say that so long as those seven fundamentals are there, you need to see some level of unity in the church as we recognize it. Third, ROPC is a Protestant church. What do we mean by Protestant? We talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. Let me just elaborate on it a little bit more. The word Protestant refers to believers who were separated from the Roman communion in the 16th century and have been ever since. Now, many Protestants existed in the church before, even in generations and centuries before the Protestant Reformation. But the Protestant Reformation introduced a division in the visible church that has never to this day been healed. And now... There are basically three Christian communions. There are Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant varieties. That doesn't mean that everybody within each of those communions is even in communion with each other. There are divisions in the Roman Catholic communion. Not all Catholics agree with the present Pope. Not all Catholics affirm Vatican I and II. There are all kinds of divisions within the visible Roman communion. Same thing with the Eastern Orthodox communion. It's interesting, different Orthodox sees, right? These, these patriarchal sees, some of them are in communion with each other. Some of them are not. Some of them are in communion with each other when they are operating in particular jurisdictions, but not when they're operating in other jurisdictions. It's really fascinating, right? How convoluted it can be. And obviously among Protestants, like Protestants, we don't get along with anybody, right? We barely get along with the members of our own denomination most of the time. And so it's not, it's not to say that there are three communions, and within those communions, there is unity and brotherly affection and all of those kinds of things. No, but there are basically three streams, three broadly speaking traditions, and Protestant has become one of those. Protestant simply means, today, not Roman Catholic and not Eastern Orthodox. And that's about all it means at this point. Originally, it would mean something like you affirmed the five solas of the Reformation, that you believed in the ultimate and final authority of Scripture alone, that Scripture is the only authority in our church's life that has that place of primacy, that salvation is by grace alone, that justification is through faith alone, that our salvation is in Christ alone and for the glory of God alone. That's what being a Protestant should mean. 
It should mean a commitment to biblical reformation. It should not be a sectarian brand that we promote. That's why I said two weeks ago that we should be lowercase p Protestants, not uppercase p Protestants. I, I realize that that is not received as enthusiastically in some corners as saying that we should be lowercase c Catholics. Uh, that's a point we can rally around. But I think we have to be careful that Protestant doesn't become a sectarian uh, club any more than any other. The five solas summarize really the key issues of the 16th century Reformation. The problem, as I said, is that many Protestants today on paper are Protestant, but in reality deny some or all of those five solas. The biblical defense of those points is important for us understanding what it really means to have this identity. If you don't have the five solas, you really do need to ask yourself the question, why are we not in communion with Rome or the Eastern Orthodox faith? Like, I mean, if, if, if those five points don't distinguish us in some way, shouldn't we really be seeking unity? See, I, I believe that we should be seeking unity. But I do believe that those five points require us to remain separate, at least for this time, for this period of history. Fourth, Reformation is a Reformed church. And what does that mean? It basically means a commitment to two things, covenant theology and Calvinism. The word reformed refers to Christians who embrace covenant theology as the means by which God has organized salvation history. That God makes covenant with man and with creation at the point of creation. That mankind then, by his representative Adam, rebels and breaks the covenant. The curses of the covenant fall upon the created world, and God then enters into a gracious covenant, a covenant of grace whereby he promises to bring a descendant of the woman to crush the serpent who had led man into death. And that really throughout the Bible, what you're seeing is this same covenantal pattern. God sovereignly imposes this covenant on his people. And, and you'll notice in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, if you look carefully, Paul refers to the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. That's very, very important to see. That's like a central feature of covenant theology, is to say that there's one promise. Now, I realize some of you may be thinking, oh, no, no, pastor, there's a lot of different promises. Promises given to Adam and Eve after the fall, promises given to Noah, promises given to Abraham, promises given to Israel, all of these different kinds of promises. Yeah, all of these different promises given to particular people and particular groups at particular points in history but Paul recognizes there is a unifying promise. There is a unifying strand through all of the covenants, plural. In other words, this is the major difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism. It's not the only difference, but it's the major difference. Covenant theology and dispensationalism both recognize that God has used different forms of administration in dealing with his people at different places and at different times throughout history. Obviously, there are differences in that way. What God does with Adam and Eve is a little different than what he does with Noah, is a little different than what he does with Abraham and with Moses and so on and so forth. But the difference is that those dispensations are not God doing different things. It's God doing the same thing all the time. The promise unites all of those different covenantal administrations. So the covenant administration changes, but the promise of the covenant remains the same throughout. And that is a difference with dispensational theology. All Christians believe 
in covenants, but Reformed Christians believe that they are pervasive in Scripture, that this really is central to understanding the Christian faith as a whole. Uh, we've introduced sometimes the, um, the acronym THEOS, T-H-E-O-S, as a way of organizing the features of a covenant, the components of a covenant. God takes hold of man. In other words, sovereignly imposes this. Man doesn't knock on the door and say, God, I'd like a relationship with you. Could you do something about that? No, God takes hold of man. He establishes hierarchy within that relationship. He defines the ethics of the covenant. He pronounces oaths, both of blessing and of cursing. And then he plans for the succession of that covenant people. Man is then experiencing life and enjoying communion with God in a covenantal way. That's why we worship in the way that we do. I, like, unlike a lot of Reformed churches, our liturgy actually is shaped by this covenantal idea. Now, not all Reformed churches believe that it should be. It's a matter that we can respectfully disagree on. But this is how pervasive this, this Reformed idea is in this congregation. We believe that even what we do on Sundays is supposed to be shaped covenantally. That the entire service is a service of covenant renewal that it's a service in which God is coming to serve us. We are not doing anything for God. And so when you visit different churches, and I've, I've been a lot of different places you have too, where in their worship order, it will, it will identify what the church is doing, right? We call upon God, we confess our sins, we praise his name, we hear his word. But, but you'll notice in our liturgy, in our worship order, it's always God acting. God calls, God cleanses, God consecrates, God communes, God commissions. Because God is the active party. And God is the one who is ultimately dealing with these people in these covenantal ways. All of your life is covenantally formed and informed. And that's part of what it means to be a Reformed church. I, I would just venture to say that there are a lot of Reformed churches that are not that Reformed. Right? That's not meant to be a criticism. But it, but it is one of the things that's distinctive here. I think that's one of the reasons sometimes people come here and they say, well, there's this, I've been a part of a Reformed church before, but there's something a little different here. This is one of the reasons. Along with that goes the idea of Calvinism. The Calvinism, of course, didn't start with John Calvin at all, uh, but it is a way of understanding the experience and process of man's salvation from the action of God. Man being totally depraved, dead in his sin, polluted in every respect, is unconditionally chosen by God before the foundation of the world, is definitively atoned for in the sacrificial work of Christ, is drawn then irresistibly into communion with God to faith in Jesus, and then preserved in that relationship for life everlasting. And if that's the way that you understand the gospel, that's going to change a lot. If you think of the gospel as an offer or an opportunity that you were wise enough, good enough to respond to, well, that's, that's going to shape how you worship, the songs you sing, how you evangelize, how you do discipleship. On the other hand, if you have this more Calvinistic frame of mind, that's, that's going to shape everything as well. If you say, my neighbors that I'm trying to evangelize, they're not just affected by their sins, they're dead. They're dead men. I'm, I'm walking among the dead. I'm not surprised when good people do bad things. I'm surprised that anybody ever does anything good. Like, thank God for common grace. But the reality is, no man outside of Christ can do anything savingly good, ultimately good in God's sight. 
That requires the Holy Spirit. It takes the pressure off in terms of evangelism and really puts the afterburners on in terms of sharing the gospel. I don't have to worry about doing it well. I don't have to worry about being persuasive. I don't have to worry about how they respond. I just simply share the gospel and then just stand back and watch and just see what happens because the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who brings people to saving faith. Our salvation was God's decision from the foundation of the world, and that, that means that we serve a big God, like a frighteningly large God. And that, too, should impact the way that we worship, the way that we disciple uh, our new believers, the way that we parent the way that we have interactions with one another. God should be so large, it's intimidating. And then we hear, but he loves us, and that he's gracious to us, and that he's merciful to us, and that we don't have to approach him in fear, but rather can come in confident and humble faith. And then fifth, ROPC is a Presbyterian church. And what Presbyterianism is, is just simply a description of church government. It's not necessarily connected to anything else. If you've heard of Cumberland Presbyterians, they are Presbyterian churches that are Arminian. You might have thought that that's kind of an oxymoron, but there it is. They're Presbyterian churches that are Arminian in their, in their theology. Uh, so Presbyterian is just a form of church government. In fact, there are many churches that would not say we are Presbyterian, but if you look at their governmental structure, you'd actually say, well, actually, you, you are basically functionally Presbyterian. The churches that I grew up in were, were what we would call low Presbyterians. They believed in elder-ruled congregations, but they didn't believe in any kind of regional connectionalism above the local church. Well, they had half of it. Presbyterianism is the idea that the church should be ruled by elders who are representatives of the people and are serving as the representatives of Christ to the people. And you heard a great Sunday school about this recently from Mike Myers. I'm not going to make all of his points. Some of you who've been through our membership classes have seen the five points, the, the biblical argument for Presbyterianism there uh, on your handout, or uh, not five, seven um, points on your handout. I thought there were more than five. I'm like, where did they go? They're on my second page. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of biblical Presbyterianism is just that in the New Testament, you see, wherever you see a church, you see elders. And you see those elders having actual authority, but those elders also being under authority. So in Acts chapter 15, when you have a controversy arise about the teaching in the churches of uh, southern Galatia and Antioch and various other places, what do they do? They send representatives, they send elders to go to Jerusalem to discuss these issues with the apostles. Why is that? The, the issue starts at the local church and then it is appealed up to what we would call higher assemblies. It doesn't start at the top. It's not as if the apostles begin in kind of a totalitarian way defining doctrine for everybody beneath them. Hey, we're going to do something new. We're going to do something different. We're going to change policies. But no, the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints is received by congregations that are led by spiritual fathers, right? The, the elders, the overseers, and then those men represent the congregation and represent Christ to the congregation. They have real authority, but it is representative authority. The church is not and must not be a democracy. That's really important. And that's going to be very different than a lot of churches that a lot of us have been in where we assume some kind of congregational democracy 
in terms of the way that decisions are made. Well, the, the, it seems good to me. Well, the, always you can communicate those ideas to your elders, but fundamentally, that's not the way that we govern. We don't just kind of take a vote to decide on what would please us best. We seek to follow the will of the Lord as it's revealed to us by those men he's gifted and called to that office. The last point I would make about this is the wisdom of Presbyterianism. Uh, I would say this, Presbyterian government is not part of the essay of the church. It is valuable as part of the Bene essay. Now, what do we mean by that? The essay of the church is the essence of the church. It's what is fundamental. It's that, those features without which the church is not the church. Right? So you start removing lines from the Apostles' Creed from your church's theology, and you cease to be a church. You start removing the doctrine of the Trinity, you remove the uh, propitiatory sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross, you remove the fact of the resurrection, you remove the fact of the, the second coming, the return of Jesus. Like, you're, you're basically ceasing to be a church. Whatever you are at this point, you're not a Christian Catholic communion anymore. But I would not say that about churches that are not Presbyterian. And I realize that in saying that, I'm disagreeing with some Presbyterians. There are some Presbyterians who believe that because Presbyterian organization is revealed by God in Scripture, is given to the church by the apostles, it is therefore an essential feature of the church. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe it is biblical. I believe it's given by God to the church. I believe it's what was handed down by the apostles. I also believe that it's been kind of a minority model for church government throughout church history. And we ought to just be honest about that. I think it's biblical. I think it's good. I think it's right. And I think it's wise. But I don't believe that we should elevate it to a primary issue and say, if you're not a Presbyterian church, then you're obviously not a church at all. Well, that's putting it on par with doctrines where it doesn't belong. But I will say this, that in saying those things, we're not trying to downplay the beauty and beneficence of Presbyterian organization. Presbyterian government properly balances the congregation's rights alongside real ministerial and ruling authority. What it seems like you often have in churches is you have one or the other. You have the congregation empowered, resulting eventually in chaos, or you have the leaders empowered, resulting in some kind of totalitarian abuses. On paper, at least, Presbyterianism balances those interests. Unfortunately, Presbyterian churches are populated with sinners, just like every other kind of church, so it doesn't always work out perfectly. Secondly, it establishes plurality and parity in the leadership while giving accountability for doctrine and life. That's really important. Like, who, who is keeping the pastor in check? Who is looking over his shoulder? Who is making sure that his doctrine is staying true to the standard? Who's making sure that his life is meeting the standard of the doctrine? Like, these are things that have been a problem in a lot of churches, and yet Presbyterianism accounts for that. Presbyterianism is a realistic model of church government because it accounts for the fact that men are foolish. Third, it protects the congregation and its leaders while holding both responsible for their errors. You cannot have members of a, a, you know, a, a party, a group, a relationship that, are, uh, that have immunity. Right? It's, it's, it's just, it will never work. Like if in your marriage, if, if the husband can only ever be wrong, like, I mean, like the, it's not possible for the wife to be wrong 
the husband is the only one who ever has to apologize, or vice versa. Like the husband, he's always right, and he never has to apologize for anything because he's the head of the, head of the wife, and therefore she's always wrong. Even, even if she's right, she's wrong, right? I thought I was right once, but, but I was wrong. You know? uh, so no, like you can't have that in a relationship. And in Presbyterian government, you have protection. If the leaders act against the congregation, they have, a, a, they have recourse. They can appeal that. They can protest that. They can complain about that. They can kick that up the chain and say, hey, our leaders are not doing the right thing. And vice versa. If the congregation is trying to abuse the leaders, there's, there's protections. And there's also accountability. When it is, in fact, found that errors have been committed, those have to be remedied. Finally, it balances local autonomy with broader connectionalism and accountability. Churches that lack this feature tend to view themselves as silos, right? We've used this analogy before, right? Churches that function like silos, they are, they are basically the universal church in a sing, compressed into a single congregation. Even when they know that that's not true. Even when they, like, there are many faithful, wonderful, godly brothers and sisters in Christ in independent churches that they know we're not the universal church. But practically speaking, we're going to have to function as if we are. Because we don't have any meaningful connection. We might know that there are Christians in other places doing other things, and we can pray for them, and we can support them, but, but in no meaningful way do we share life together. We could send them money. They could send us you know, a, a guest preacher. But if, but if we have problems or they have problems, there's, there's no connection whatsoever where there can be any accountability toward one another. Whereas Presbyterianism recognizes we have broader relationships than just our church. It's a dangerous thing for a church not to have accountability outside of itself. It really is. That can, that can give rise to pride. That can give rise to kind of a, a, a cult-like mindset or, or a cult of personality that is super unhealthy. So while Presbyterianism is not, I would say, part of the essence of the church, it is an important part of the well-being of the church. And therefore, it's a feature that, as long as I'm here, as long as our elders are here, that's, uh, that's going to be part of our theological DNA. Well, let me, let me finish up by saying this, and we'll see if there are any questions. What kind of a church is ROPC? We are a Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Reformed, and Presbyterian church. And you'll notice that everything there is in lowercase except Christian. It's the only one that I feel like really deserves an uppercase letter. And that's not to minimize or downplay the importance of any of those other categories. It is simply to put them in proper perspective. And what I hope you realize is that that kind of a taxonomy is not merely a denominational identity, right? Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I'll keep mentioning it because I want you to notice it the next time you read True Grit or watch the movie, right? Um, There is great Presbyterian humor in True Grit. FYI. Charles Portis, very hilarious, very dry humor. You have to pay attention. There's great Presbyterian humor in that novel and in that movie. At one point, Matty Ross is talking to Ranger Labeef, and he mentions kind of defensively that he was Episcopalian. And she looks at him and says derisively, you looked like a kneeler. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about Anglicans versus Presbyterians, right? Anglicans kneel for the prayer of confession, and Presbyterians, as a general rule, don't. They should, but that's a different lesson, right? So she's, because she's a Presbyterian, she's part of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Actually, if you read the novel, right, she joins the faithful 
the traditional Presbyterian church later in life. That's not in the movie. That's in the novel. You have to read the novel to see that part. But anyway, she looks at him derisively because she's a Presbyterian, and, and therefore she's right, right? She's correct. She says, you look like a kneeler. Well, see, that's not the way we want to think about our church. We don't want to look at other churches and look down our nose and say, oh, you're one of those churches that, you know, what a, pick a distinctive. You've got a different distinction than we, than we have. What we want to do is, is identify, recognize, affirm as much unity as possible while also being transparent and honest about our theological differences. And that's a hard thing to keep in balance. It's a, it, I think it's a hard thing, right? That we either pursue unity at the expense of doctrinal fidelity, or we pursue doctrinal fidelity at the expense of any kind of unity. The wisdom that is from above, James says, James chapter 4, is first pure, then peaceable. And those are his words. First pure, then peaceable. So if we have to choose between purity and peace, we always choose purity first, right? But, but the point is that the wisdom from above puts peace second on the list. It's on the list. It's important. And so we want to pursue unity as much as possible and not just think denominationally, not just think in a sectarian way, while also being transparent and honest about how we understand Scripture, how we seek to serve God, and why we think that that's good. Not be ashamed of the fact that we're a Reformed church. Not be ashamed of the fact that we're a Presbyterian church. Not be ashamed of the fact that our worship might look different or some of our doctrines may be different or our sermons are a lot longer and more boring or whatever it is that, you know, we sing psalms and that's really strange. We have a hymnal and that's really strange, but that's okay, right? We can explain the reasons for that. So, that's our study tonight. I hope that that is useful at some level. It was meant to kind of help reinforce other recent teaching. Might instead have felt repetitive. I hope that was not the case. But regardless, there it is. You have it now. Let's bow together and close in prayer, and we'll see if you've got any questions. Gracious God, we're thankful for the blessing of this church. Father, as we think about the ways that you have led this church and reformed this church and transformed this church over the last decade, it is truly amazing to us that this church is here, that this church is alive, that this church is vibrant and growing and, um, and loving one another and loving you. It truly is a work of grace. And we are grateful, O oh God, for the identity that you've given us, for the understanding that you've given us, for the ways that you have worked in us, on us, and through us. And we pray that you would continue to bless, strengthen and lead us in these ways. Please help us uh, to think carefully, biblically uh, about these matters, O oh God, that we would not fall into the pit of theological pride or sectarianism that would dishonor you, that neither would we abandon those standards and that truth that you have delivered to your church by your Holy Spirit. Would you pray for the day when such schism as we see uh, in the broader church, we pray for the day when that would be healed. We pray when, for the day when divisions uh, would be mended and when your people would be one and we would see that unity far more clearly than we do at the present time. Until that day, we pray that you would continue to build, bless, teach, and lead your church in repentance and bring us safely to our everlasting home. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.